everyone and welcome back to another episode of What the Forensics. My name is Journey and I'm joined here again today by the lovely Rebecca and Nicole. This week Rebecca will be telling us all about the case of Mark Twitchell and this topic was actually suggested to us by one of our like avid listeners. She's always reaching out to us on Instagram and sending us uh, topic ideas which is really awesome and then Nicole will be educating us on the science of bloodstain pattern analysis. So think Dexter and how it played an instrumental role in this case. I would also like to note that there is a listener's discretion advised, as there are detailed descriptions of blood and murder. And that being said, I'll pass it over to Rebecca. Thank you. Um, so before we get started, uh, I'm going to talk about his early life just a little bit, but there was really like no information about his early life. Um, so yeah, let's jump into it. <laughs> um, born on July 4th of 1979 in Edmonton, Alberta, um, it was suspected that Mark Twitchell spent much of his early life living in the Midwest United States. Um, however, this isn't really confirmed because there was a weird lack of information on his early life, as I had said. Um, so we just know that he was born in Canada, but spent some of his childhood in the States. Um it was always known, however, that uh, Twitchell wanted to be a famous filmmaker. Right now, I'm speculating a little bit, but you'll understand why later, that a big reason uh, for his love for film and his inspiration came from the Star Wars franchise, which he clearly very much loved. So I'm, in two... Sorry. Sorry. I'm really excited to know why the Star Wars franchise... Yeah, it was, he was a filmmaker, but I don't know. You'll see later. <laughs> okay, I'm excited. <laughs> um, so in 2000, to pursue the career of his dreams, Twitchell graduated from Northern Alberta Institute of Technology's radio and television arts program. Just a few months after graduating, in January of 2001, Twitchell married an American woman whose name was Megan, and he moved to Illinois to live with her. They were married until September of 2004, uh, but it's at that time they got a divorce. Not much is known about the events that led up to the divorce. However, in the divorce documents, it did reveal that Megan cited extreme and repeated mental cruelty as the reason for wanting a divorce. Despite that, in the fall of 2005, so just over a year after divorce with his ex-wife, uh, Twitchell met another woman on a dating website whose name was Jess. Just over a year after meeting, in January of 2007, they got married and a year later had a child together. Um, I'm uncertain when he returned to Canada from Illinois. However, it was sometime between 2004 and 2006 because in the summer of 2006, he began working on his first major film project and was filming it at the place he went to school formerly at the Northern Alberta Institute of Technology. So the film that Twitchell was working on was actually garnering a lot of hype and attention uh, and was getting like already a bit of a fan base, even though it hadn't been made yet. Um, when I first read that, I thought it was a little bit odd because, you know, he's never made anything. This is his first job. So I was just wondering where all the hype was coming from. Um, but as it turns out, 
the reason his movie already had a following was because he was producing a Star Wars fan film. So this film was called Star Wars Secret of the Rebellion, and according to Twitchell, it was going to be, quote, the most ambitious Star Wars indie production in history, unquote. Um, so many agreed that it was going to be amazing because Twitchell was known in the Star Wars community as being very talented in prop and costume design. Um, and he put those skills to work in this film by creating replicas of many of the original sets and costumes. As this fan film was wrapping up and going into post-production, Twitchell began working on another film project. Um, in September of 2008, Twitchell rented out a small garage and hired a couple of his uh, film crewmate friends and actors, and they began filming a short film that Twitchell had wrote the screenplay for himself. The short film was called House of Cards, and it followed a man who lured an unsuspecting man into his kill room, a garage covered in plastic sheets, knives, cleaning supplies, and a metal table uh, by posing as a woman on a dating site and then luring him in and killing him after the killer dismembered the body and disposed of it. Um, so just a little side note here. You'll notice that a lot of that sounds really similar to Dexter, um, which is why we mentioned it at the beginning. Mark Twitchell was also known as the Dexter killer because he had a weird infatuation with the fictional character. Um, yeah. So to continue just a month after shooting this film, uh, which he even had his set designers build a, quote, sturdy wooden table with metal finishing and, quote, a chair that bolted to the ground, unquote, for. Twitchell joined the dating website Plenty of Fish under the name Sheena and posed as a woman. On October 3rd, Twitchell began talking to a computer company contractor whose name was Gillies Titchralt. I'm sorry in advance if I mispronounced that. Um, after speaking to him for a few days as Sheena, Twitchell asked Gillies as Sheena on a date and sent him an address. Sheena, so Twitchell, told Gillies that he wanted to meet in the garage in her backyard because it was the easiest way to get to her apartment. And although Gillies uh, thought this was a little bit suspicious, he was really starting to like this girl that he met online and he decided to go anyways and meet her. Uh, the garage that Twitchell had given the address to was the same one he filmed House of Cards in, um, and it was actually a garage in his parents' backyard, and he still had his kill room set up inside. So upon entering the garage, Gillies was attacked with a stun baton by Twitchell, who was wearing a painted hockey mask. Gillies then fell to the floor, and Twitchell pulled out a gun and threatened to shoot him. However, when Gillies realized that Sheena wasn't real, the girl he was trying to meet, and this was a trick to get him there. Um, his kind of fight or flight instinct took over, and he decided to fight. And he lunged at Twinjil's gun to try and take it from him, or at least knock it out of his hand. And when doing so, he grabbed the gun, and Gillies actually learned that the gun was a fake. It was just a toy, like BB gun, painted to look real. So in response to this, he attacked Twinjil to get away. He put up a pretty good fight, and so good to the point that he managed to drag himself outside onto the sidewalk and scream for help. So he managed to escape um, Twitchell's harm without any help. However, it was reported that a couple walked by while he was screaming for help, but they ran because they thought he might have been playing like a, an injury scam to try to mug them. I don't know where 
how we confirmed that information, but that was what was in the news. Um, Unfortunately, after this attack, out of embarrassment and shame that he had been catfished, he didn't really want anyone to know. Um, So Gillies didn't report the incident to the cop or tell anybody about it in the beginning. So on October 10th, just seven days after first meeting Gillies, uh, Twitchell managed to arrange a date with another man on Plenty of Fish, but this time posing as a woman named Jen. This man was 38-year-old John Altinger, and instead of providing an address to John, uh, Jen gave Altinger a set of directions to the property. One friend testified that Altinger called him from the garage and said that there was no woman there, just a man with a replica gun who said he was making a movie. Um, so that was a little weird and he left. However, less than an hour later, his friend received a text from John that said, quote, she's home now. I'm heading over again. He he, unquote. Don't like reading he he like that, but <laughs> it's I, in the quote. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> so the friends didn't hear from John for the rest of the night, but they were a little bit concerned um, throughout the weekend, they continued to call and email their friend, but they never got any response back from him. On October 13th, so just a few days after he met with Jen or Mark, um, their, his friends received an email from John's email account that said Jen was taking him on a trip to Costa Rica and he was really looking forward to him, but he's not going to have access to his email, so don't try to reach out. Um, but according to his friends, this was really uncharacteristic of John for a few reasons. One of which was that the text style that the email was sent in was just really unlike John. It wasn't like his linguistic or typing style. Um, so it just seemed like someone else wrote it. They also said that John didn't like warm places or climates. So they don't understand why he would have went to Costa Rica when he usually prefers to vacation somewhere colder. And finally, if he went on vacation and left his home, they said he would have asked his friends to store his bike when he went away. Um, so still not being able to get a hold of him, uh, his friends contacted the police to tell them they were concerned. However, the police said that they didn't really have enough evidence right now to investigate, uh, so they weren't able to. To find more evidence, or maybe just to see where their friend was, uh, his friends actually broke into his apartment to see if he was there. And while they didn't find him, they did find his passport, suitcase, and shaving kit, uh, which obviously made them very concerned because he wouldn't leave the country without these, especially his passport. He's not allowed to leave without that. Um, so Altinger was officially reported missing on October 17th of 2008. At that point, police thought it did warrant an investigation because they agreed this was very suspicious. Luckily, John was a pretty smart guy. And before going on his date with Jen, uh, he forwarded the directions, uh, to the location of the date to two other friends before going. So this gave the police a really great head start. That was pretty much one of the first things they did on the investigation. They went to the location of where the date was to go investigate. Um, so they went over to the garage using the directions. And when they were there, they met Twitchell. They weren't initially suspicious of Twitchell. They didn't think he was involved um, until, and I don't know how this came up, but until he told the police that he had recently bought a red Mazda for $40 off some stranger and that it was parked at his friend's house. 
This raised eyebrows at those, uh, for the police because they also happened to be searching for John Altinger's red Mazda, which was missing after he disappeared. It seems really odd that the, he'd be like, oh, yeah, no, I just bought this new car. And the police are right? like, oh, that's the car we're looking for. Why would you offer that information? And also, how unrealistic is it that he bought her for $40? Right? Yeah, I was just going to say that. <laughs> yeah, like, that does not make choose, sense. Why choose $40? At least give a reasonable amount that you would have paid for. Or yeah, like 400 like- yeah. True. Weird. Yeah. It was just weird. He's he's not a good criminal. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I agree with that. So, um, obviously, he told the police about his car, and the police went to go see the car, and they actually confiscated it for evidence because they determined it did belong to John Altinger. Um, although, by the time the police got to it, um, Twitchell had already put on vanity plates that I don't remember what the vanity plate said, but it was a reference to Star Wars, which is not surprising for this man. I love Anyways, it. <laughs> um, so the police compensated the car, and inside the trunk of the vehicle, they found Twitchell's laptop. And on the laptop, there were deleted files, uh, one of which was a document called SK Confessions which the police now speculate meant serial killer confessions uh, because it was a journal-style document that started with the line, quote, this story is the story of my progression into becoming a serial killer, unquote. Um, if you're going to try and hide your document, maybe don't start it by saying that you're a serial killer. Right. Or like write in code. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, <laughs> after the fact, and like this was evidence and stuff, he claimed it was fiction and that it was all just research for his film House of Cards. Um, but you'll hear a little bit more later about why that's very likely not the case. <laughs> um, so after finding the SK Confessions document, um, police put Twitchell on 24-hour surveillance and discovered that he had a bit of an obsession with the fictional TV character Dexter. Uh, in fact, he sometimes would even go on Facebook uh, and pretend to be Dexter Morgan. Like, he had a fake account with Dexter's picture and name, and he would just react to comments and post stuff as Dexter Morgan. That's so, really weird. Right? <laughs> That's a little spooky. <laughs> so he became uh, even more suspicious, as if he wasn't already, on October 23rd, when Twitchell sent an email to his film crew and friends that, in a nutshell, urged people not to talk to the police. I'll post the letter on our website because it is actually available on the internet to read. Um, but I just want to share one of the lines from it. He wrote, quote, I wish I could talk to you about it, and maybe one day in the future that will be possible. But for now, I have to recommend everyone stop talking to the police or not to start if you haven't already. If you aren't sure what I'm referring to, then you will soon enough, unquote. That's kind of odd. Yeah, and it was it was like a three-paragraph email, and a lot of it was him telling his friends, like, you have a Fifth Amendment right not to speak, uh, don't tell them anything. If you've already started talking to them, stop talking to them. 
Oh it goodness. looked very suspicious. <laughs> yeah, that's really, really weird. I could kind of, like, understand it from maybe, like, a PR thing, like, trying to keep it on the down low. Like, this would make sense if it was, like, a Hollywood thing, like, trying not to get it all over the press. But with him being a low-budget indie filmmaker, it comes off as more suspicious as if, like, yeah, I did kill someone, don't talk to the police because you probably know something. Yeah, like, I... The more I read about Mark Twitchell, like, the more I think he was one of the worst criminals. Nice. Because he just, I don't know, like, he idolized Dexter so much to the point where he made a kill room based after Dexter to leave behind no evidence. But he left behind so much evidence. (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah, so um, there was a lot, as we were just talking about, so that brings me right into the next part of what I was saying. Uh, There was a lot of incriminating evidence that led to Twitchell getting quickly arrested on October 31st, 2008. That was only about two weeks uh, since the victim had reported missing, so it wasn't actually that much time before he was arrested, which is great. Um, So... Police found blood in the trunk of Twitchell's car, uh, and when tested, matched the DNA of John Altinger. Also inside the car, they found a bloody knife, which was inside a sheath that also had blood on it. Um, the police released the SK confession document in ho- to the public in hopes of bringing forward the victim that escaped, because in the SK confession's diary, it specifies that he had attempted it already, but the victim escaped and he needed to do it again. They hoped that this victim would come forward. Um, and luckily, on November 3rd, Gillies Tetralt would come forward, and he said that his attack matched the descriptions in the diary uh, that described the attack on Frank. In the diary, by the way, uh, Twitchell did specify that he was changing all of the names and stuff in the diary so that nobody could be identified. Um, so the descriptions on the attack of Frank in the diary matched, uh, Gilly Tetralt's attack almost word for word, everything that happened. Um, and upon examining the garage, which is now a crime scene, police found more blood evidence on a copper metal pipe, which they suspected was used to hit John Altinger over the head. Um, they also found the metal table in the center of the room that the crew had built, Um, And when using luminol, they found a very large pool of blood that had clearly been attempted to clean up uh, right in like in the middle of the floor. Um, And in addition to this, inside uh, Twitchell's home, they found bloody jeans. So with all of this physical blood evidence and the fact that there were far too many consistencies between the crime scene and the SK confessions document, police figured it could not have been fictional like this. He... This was him writing his story. Um, The document described how the killer dismembered the body um, on the table before putting the remains into a metal barrel and burning the barrel. Um, And inside the garage, police found a burnt metal barrel, as he described. And in the yard, just outside the garage, they found burnt glass or sorry, burnt grass very clearly in the shape of the cylindrical barrel's bottom. This feels like a joke. Like, there's no way he wrote exactly what he's done, and then police just read it and find exactly the evidence they're looking for. Right? Like, you'd think he'd at least try to get rid of the evidence. (laughs) 
Like, I was, uh, when you said that he had, like, a murder room, like, Dexter and all of this stuff, and I was like, okay, like, I guess that could get away with some evidence, but then, like, the evidence found in the car, and then it just keeps piling up, and you're like, how dumb do you have to be? Right? (laughs) Anyways, interesting. (laughs) Yeah, he really was not a smart criminal. Um, all of this evidence was enough to charge, uh, Twitchell with Altinger's first degree murder, despite not even knowing where Altinger's body is. Um, so when he got arrested, he remained in custody awaiting trial. Um, and he didn't reveal where he hid the remains, nor did police find the remains for almost two years. So in June of 2010, um, Twitchell was still in custody. So he's still waiting for his, uh, hearing, Um, He requested a meeting through his lawyer with the Edmonton homicide detectives. This meeting was very short. No words were exchanged between Twitchell and the detectives. Uh, Twitchell just handed them a piece of paper that was folded once. um, And then the police took it and they left the room. On this piece of paper was a Google map image of a North Edmonton neighborhood with quote, location of John Altinger's remains, unquote, written underneath it. Uh, Also on the page was a very detailed set of directions to a sewer gate in an alleyway, uh, followed by Altinger's hand signature. The next day, uh, police used this and followed the directions, and in the sewer that he led them to, they found the badly decomposed remains of John Altinger. Wow. Wow. Wasn't he, was he the one that they said was burned in a barrel, though? Or was that someone else? He was, yeah. So they said that he was dismembered and burned in a barrel. um, And I believe he couldn't get rid of all the evidence in that way. So he ended up putting it down the sewer. Um, But even though he dismembered it and did that, and it's been decomposing for like almost two years, uh, the autopsy did still reveal that he died from stabs and blunt force trauma to the head, which is why they suspected the copper pipe with blood on it was used to hit him on the head to knock him unconscious. Hmm. So, yeah. Um, something I find really wild about this case, thats it's a little bit of a side note, uh, but still very much related to finding the body, um, is that it's reported that Um, In the initial police search for either the living or the remains of John Altinger when he initially went missing, um, this search ended just half a block from where they ended up finding Altinger's remains. Holy smokes. Yeah, so it was like right under their noses. What are the chances of that? Did they just kind of get to a point where they're like, "Mm, I guess we got to call it a day kind of thing and then left i think so like i i didn't read like the specifics of why they stopped there but that's my impression was that it was just kind of like okay we've gone this far i don't know if we're gonna find him sort of thing oh that sucks i know (laughs) also Um, when i was looking at the notes and i saw the location of john altinger's remains I thought he had a pin on his phone in Google Maps labeled location of John Altinger's <laughs> remains. And I was like, can this guy be more stupid? Oh but my God, that would have like, been wild. Right? And then you read it and I was like, okay, no, that makes a lot more sense. Because I couldn't even imagine if he was that dumb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that 
Oh my god, that would have been kind of hilarious, though. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, so at trial, the jury was presented with all of this evidence, um, including the SK confessions document, the crime scene photos, and even a testimony um, by Mark Twitchell. He got up on the stand. Um, Twitchell attempted to claim self-defense. Uh, he admitted that he did stab Altinger, but it was only because Altinger charged at him and attacked him first. Um, he tried to claim that the document that he wrote was just a work of fiction and it was research for his new book. Um, however, the eerial, sorry, eerily similar details to the crime, as well as the comparison of his kill room to the one used in the fictional TV show Dexter, which he was clearly obsessed with, uh, was enough for the jury. He was found guilty of first degree murder and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for 25 years on April 12th of 2011. So that's the end of like his official story. Um, there was a lot of information I was finding that was like really interesting and that I wanted to talk about about the case, but I didn't like know specifically where in the timeline to put it. Um, so I just wanted to share like these couple extra facts about it because I thought they were interesting. So I won't get into it too much, but Jess Twitchell, who was his second wife, who he had a daughter with, um, they finalized their divorce in 2010 after police had showed up at uh, the Twitchell Holmes house while uh, Jess was carrying their nine-month-old baby, and the police told her that their husband had killed someone. And she was very, very shocked. She had no idea about this. Um, but all of this is sort of how it started to come to light that Jess thought for the past like year or so, uh, Mark Twitchell had been seeing a psychiatrist because she said um, he thought he was a pathological liar and he just really needed help. Um, so on their family calendar in like their kitchen or their living room, uh, every week or so on it was written shrink for Mark's appointment. So Jess never thought anything of this because she thought he was going to a shrink. Um, but as it turns out, he was lying to her and the whole time, instead of going to see a shrink, he was actually going to his kill room to like set up and prepare for the murder and all that stuff. Um, in addition, he got fired from his job as a salesman, but he lied to his wife about it for five months, uh, just because he didn't want her to know he lost his job and was just going to try to make a living on his low budget films. Um, in addition, he um, was caught by Jess using a dating website, like starting to cheat on her. But he said that it was just research for a movie. Um, and then he hired a friend of his to tell Jess that he was the script editor of the movie and he really was just doing research. There was nothing bad here. That's kind of suspicious, though, because how would Jess find him on a dating site if she didn't have the intent of also finding a date? You know, well, I think it might have been like she found it on his phone or something. Oh, OK. I see. Because if it was like found through her profile kind of thing, like, <laughs> I don't know, raised some question marks in my head. <laughs> yeah, I think it might have been like Plenty of Fish or one of those websites that was still like mainly a desktop sort of oh, computer yeah. sort of thing. So it might have been like open or something like that. Um, so the final thing I have to say about Mark Twitchell is that today he is still in prison and he keeps expressing interest in starting up his film career, uh, because he doesn't think it's fair that the world never got to see his fan film. Um, 
because even though the film was in post-production and was basically finished, the police, um, the police took his Star Wars fan film and no one ever got to see it, uh, because they were keeping it in police custody as evidence. Um, and despite multiple requests to get the film back because he wants to release it, the police refuse to give him any of his films back. And I just think that's hilarious. Do you think they all watch it in like the break room and get I a good so. laugh out of it? Like on I lunch so. or something? <laughs> <laughs> I know. I really want to see it. I bet you it's like amazing. Yeah, apparently it actually was supposed to be really good and really well done, but the world will never know because it was a murderer's film. <laughs> Journey, you should see if Schofield can get in contact with Edmonton police. Yeah. Sneak your way in there and see if they still have it. You're like, hey, for research, can I see this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They'll be like, we've heard that one before. Ah, yes, yes. <laughs> Strictly for research, yep. Yep. <laughs> Just only release it on my podcast, it's okay. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> we just want to do, like, a video analysis of it. That's a good excuse. Right? <laughs> is that all you have, Rebecca? Yes, it is. Sorry. That is all okay. I have on Mark Twitchell and his crimes. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. I... <sighs> He's very intriguing, and it's kind of weird to think of it as, like, an Albertan case, because it seems so much bigger than that. Yeah, and I don't, I can I don't see know that. if that's just me, but, yeah, so that was kind of wild. Um, But, Nicole, did you want to tell us all about blood pattern analysis? Yes, I would love to. Um, For the purpose of this episode, though, I'm not really going to go into detail about, like, properties and characteristics of blood itself. Um, That would just take way too long. It can get kind of boring. And we did an episode about serology. I think it was episode 14, um, where we give some information on that. So go check that out. But basically, the important things to know about blood are that it's a liquid and it can clot. That's kind of keep those in mind for that as we go on. Um, But anyways, so blood pattern analysis is when someone examines blood stains and then they try um, to determine how they were possibly created and it can give them kind of a possible window of time that the crime could have occurred during. So it's the application of fluid dynamics and thus it becomes ultimately a science of physics And they try to work backwards, reconstructing the events of the crime. So the size, shape, and distribution of bloodstains can provide analysts certain information on what could have caused that pattern. So these patterns can give information regarding whether the victim or offender was sitting, whether they were standing at the time of the offense, um, their relative position to one another, the type of weapon that could have been used, any movement that could have happened as well. So if one was walking, um, you can actually determine the number of blows in most cases or in some cases, which wounds were inflicted first, whether death was immediate or delayed, and even um, surprisingly, the handedness of the offender. So if you have a left-handed offender, um, depending on stain patterns, you could determine and narrow down your suspect pool to people with left hands or dominant left hands. Sorry. Everyone, most people except amputees have left hands. Um, anyway, 
um, the first time someone scientifically scientifically examined blood shapes and distribution was in 1895. And in 1905, another researcher discussed how the morphological analysis of bloodstains could possibly help crime scene reconstruction. After this, more research was then conducted, um, specifically in 1914, and this investigated the patterns caused by blood falling from various heights. So their research looked at um, how the pattern and blood stains and drops would be affected from, say, like a foot above ground level or however many more feet above ground level. Um... Then in 1939, findings were published about the impact angle of blood. So this is basically just how um, the blood stain may differ depending on the angle at which the blood will hit a surface. In 1975, a study looked at expiration patterns, and these are basically patterns caused by blood forced out by a source of air. So examples of these would be like having blood in your airway and then either like breathing out really hard or um, I kind of go into it a bit um, later too, but any air involved is expirated patterns. Um, The International Association of Bloodstain Pattern Analysts was established in 1983 And in 2005, a German working group was established known as the German Society for Forensic Medicine. And this name was actually just like the translated name that I did a quick German to English translation because I could not pronounce the German pronunciation um, for the life of me and I didn't want to embarrass myself by trying. So I'll give you the English one and that's the German Society for Forensic Medicine. Uh, When it comes to patterns being created by blood, though, it's volume... Oh, that would be my cat. I don't know if you heard that. Hi, (laughs) Nova. She says hi. (laughs) She's stuck on my windowsill somehow. Uh Um, (laughs) Uh-oh. Anyways, the volume, viscosity, and surface tension all play important roles, as well as the surface on which um, the blood also hits. So, talking about surfaces now, smoother, harder, and less porous surfaces generally have the least amount of distortion to the drops of blood when they make contact, and they remain more circular because of the surface tension. Um, It just keeps it all together with cohesion and whatnot. And um, blood, though, that may drop on wood or more porous material... Um, they would have more like spinier edge patterns, so they wouldn't be that perfect circle. You'd see little bits sticking off of it. And you'd also see what are called satellites um, due to the disruption of blood. So those are basically like, I like to think of them as little islands off of the initial blood stain. So they're little dots and sprays coming off of that main um, blood pattern. But I kind of go into it a bit more, but spines are scalloped ridges that protrude from the original drop. And satellites are, like I said, the smaller spots that come off from parent drops. So they're going to be smaller secondary stains, and they aren't connected to the original drop, while spines 
are. I get that may have been very confusing since they sound similar. Um, but think of like satellites, like satellites in space, they kind of are separated and float. Those are satellites of blood. And we can put images and stuff on our website too yeah. for those listeners who want a visual of this. Yeah, I realized like as I was researching, a lot of the stuff is difficult to cohesively explain just through audio, um, <laughs> especially when it like talks about the physics portion of it. Um, I, yeah, we'll upload pictures and everything like that because it's a lot easier to conceptualize and visualize that way. Um, I will say too, those satellites are seen when blood drips in an already existing bl- drop of blood. So I'll look for a picture of that and post that as well. But another characteristic sometimes seen with edges of bloodstains are what's called serum separation marks. And so this is when the edges of a stain are more clear than the center with more of the plasma than blood shown as it separates. When talking about the patterns themselves, though, and kind of how they may look on different surfaces, excuse me, um, there are three main basic types of bloodstain patterns that can happen, and these include passive patterns, transfer patterns, and projected patterns, but there are a bunch of, like, sub-patterns within these three main ones. So passive patterns include drips and flows of blood and happen when the only acting force on blood is gravity. So an example of this would be blood dripping from your hand onto the ground, for example. And with these patterns, high volumes of blood present would then be considered like a pooling or a saturation pattern. So it's still passive, but just because there's more present, you get a larger pool of blood. And so these patterns can tell investigators that the victim would have been bleeding without any movement for a given period of time, most often a longer period of time. And pooling of blood would be on, or would be seen, sorry, on harder surfaces, so like a floor, um, and it just kind of sits on top of the surface. But um, comparatively, saturation is then when blood is absorbed into a material. So this would be seen if, um, say, you were stabbed laying on a bed and you couldn't move, that bleeding out onto the bed and the saturation and absorption into the mattress would be the saturation um, stain. So would you say that a good visual of this would be like on Criminal Minds or like any kind of like crime TV show when someone gets shot and then they fall down and then that pool of blood kind of like comes out yeah. from underneath them. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a very exaggerated <laughs> um, <laughs> like version of it hands down. Cause you don't really bleed out that fast, but yeah, that's yeah. like exactly it. So if you watch crime shows or movies and they just, it's that like really dramatic slow shot that zooms in on the body or zooms out and they're just laying there and blood like, seeps out of them that would be a pooling of blood and then could you say that like for the expiration um pattern or what you were talking about earlier where you have to like expire the blood no that's not the right way um 
would be like when they're laying on the ground, like dying dramatically, and then they like cough and they cough blood. That yeah. would be a good example of expired yeah. blood or expired. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So if um somehow you get blood into your airways, um, this could be due to trauma or any of that. Um, if you coughed, you you have that like projection of mix of air and blood coming out from you. Right. Excellent. Um, yeah. I do talk about expirated blood a little bit more in detail, too, um, further on. Um, but blood present in pooling situations will dry much slower than those that have been saturated, which kind of makes sense when you think about it. And clotting is typically seen when blood pools as well. So the next pattern, which would be transfer patterns, they're also known as contact patterns. These happen when a surface that's wet with blood then comes into contact with another surface. And this typically may not have other blood on it. It may. It's just contact with any second surface. And these are also considered a type of passive pattern. So examples of these... um, could be like if you're walking through a bloody spot on the ground, you'd then be transferring the blood from the bottom of your shoe to the floor as you continue to walk. And another example would be like if you have a pool of blood and you take your hand or cloth and you wipe it to try and clean it, you're then smearing that blood and you have that contact with the second surface. And so these patterns tend to get lighter the farther they move from the parent blood stain. So if you imagine again that you're walking through blood, the first few steps outside of the initial blood stain are going to be more red. But as you walk farther away, the less red they'll get and the less visible they'll be on the floor. So although they're not visible to our naked eye, though, you can use alternative light sources um, to see these continuations of patterns, which is pretty neat. Um, And so like I kind of said, with hand swiping or smearing blood in an attempt to clean it, um, if something is wiped, swiped, dragged, or anything of that nature, there's many words to describe it, um, the movement creates what's called a feathering effect. So this, the start of the stain will be darker and then proceed to get lighter as there's less blood to wipe and like to keep spreading. And so this effect's helpful because it actually lets investigators figure out the direction of the movement. Because if you think about it, the direction of the movement's going to be as it gets lighter, that's the way it was moving, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, kind of like as it gets lighter when they're like stepping it or whatever, you're like, okay, well, they walked this way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because it just like logically it it wouldn't make sense to start light and then go dark. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, it would just be better to start dark than go light. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> okay. Um, And so the last grouping of patterns are projected patterns. And these are when external forces greater than gravity act on the blood. So this can be caused by impact or projection. And impact would be when something is coming into contact with the source of blood with external force. So um, I always think of 
unfortunately a baseball bat hitting something or someone like that would be an impact. It's a force coming into contact with something. Um, and projection patterns, they're kind of like different spray patterns. I don't really know how to describe projection without using the word project. Um, would a good example be like, say if you're like you, someone slices their throat open and then the blood yeah. is kind of like spurted out. Or like yeah, exactly. Project. So, okay. Yeah, so examples of projection patterns would be like arterial sprays. So um, obviously, like you just said, a cut to the artery or something like that. Um, cast off patterns and expiration patterns. These would all be considered projected patterns. Um, and front and back spatter and void patterns are also included within the projection pattern realm and kind of concept. So like we just kind of mentioned, arterial patterns are from blood spurting out from a wound to the artery. And as blood pumps um, from your heart, or as your heart pumps blood, I guess, it's exiting the wound with velocity with each like pump of your heart. So this can cause the pattern to sometimes look zigzagged, and that's going to cause a different pattern and um, display of blood than you'd get from, say, just a cut to somewhere else on your body. Um, so cast-off patterns are, would be a next um, projection pattern. These are when, or I guess this type of pattern is when blood is kind of thrown or forced off an object due to movement. So kind of going back to the whole bat situation, if you were to swing a bat that has wet blood, wet blood on it, excuse me, in an upwards motion, so starting down by your legs and up above your head, you'd see a cast-off pattern from the blood being flung off the bat due to motion. So you'd see it starting close to the ground and then in a linear movement up the wall and possibly even up onto the ceiling. So these patterns often tend to be fairly linear and um, knife pattern, like a lot of cast off happens with knives. And although it may seem like a passive pattern, if you are walking with a knife that has dripping blood off of it, this would technically be considered um, a cast off because you have that movement of walking, you have that motion, but you also have. Um, the drip from the knife. But going back to expirated um, patterns, I feel like I'm not saying this right. I, all of the sources I found had expirated as the word. It just sounds like they're ex like a expired due date. No, it's um, right. Cause like, okay. <laughs> when you exhale, it's also known as like expirating something. Okay. That's what I thought, but it just, it seems not right in my it's brain. Just, I think you've said it too many times where we're yeah. like, yeah, no, this is wrong, <laughs> but it is right. A hundred percent. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Um, these patterns are caused when air pressure forces blood out. So this can be from the mouth, nose, or even some wounds. And these patterns will sometimes show bubbles in the blood if it's still wet or like little bubble rings if it dries. So if you think of like blowing soap bubbles when you get that 
bubble that lands on the ground and pops, you get that little ring. That's what you would see in kind of that pool or spot of blood. Um, Next, front and back spatter. These happen when blood is forced either forwards or backwards during an impact, as obviously the name states as front and back spatter. Um, But an example of this would be from a bullet wound. So if you imagine shooting someone, I guess, to put it lightly, um, the blood that follows the bullet out of the wound with the force away from the offender and the victim, this would be called front spatter. So say I was very mad at Journey and I decided to shoot her shoulder. The the blood that comes out her back of the shoulder would be called front spatter, which is a little confusing. And then the small amount of blood that goes in the opposite direction, so um, that would come back towards me as the shooter, that's called back spatter. Oh, okay. I yeah. totally had that backwards. Okay. It's, it's very confusing, and I really hope I got that right, because if not, I'm just illiterate. Um, but from my understanding, it's it's more so like from the shooter or the offender perspective. So the front spatter moves away from your front, but then back spatter comes back towards you. Yeah, that makes sense. And so this back spatter that's coming back towards the offender, I feel like I'm saying back too often now. Sorry if it's, it doesn't sound like a real word now. Um, These have, these stains often have a lot less volume than front spatter. But this is also why, um, like, you want to collect clothing samples and all that jazz from suspects because, um, even though it may not be in extremely visible, this back spatter, it is still there and you can use like these alternate light sources and other methods. Um, lastly, void patterns. These form when an object blocks the path of blood, when there's an impact or projection. And then when that object's moved, there's a space that's free of any blood. So the rest of the blood would create a pattern around it on the surrounding surface, and you'd have a blank space without any blood that looks like exactly like the object that was blocking it. Um, and so to t- kind of tie the physics aspects into blood pattern analysis, I wanted to go over the math and logic behind what investigators are able to figure out from patterns, but not like go too deep into the math because it's hard to just explain it without like writing it or showing you. But basically when blood falls at a 90 degree angle, so say drops just from your hand onto the ground at 90 degrees, it'll leave an even round mark, meaning that the length and width of that drop are equal to each other. So it's just a perfect circle. As that angle changes, the shape of the blood stain is going to change as well. Right. 
Um, it's hard because I'm like talking fully with my hands right now too. And I know you guys can't see me, but I feel like it would just help explain it so much more. If you I could know see. it's so weird recording without the video because I'm like, I'm nodding along and I'm like, yeah, I'm understanding what you're saying, but you have no idea that I'm understanding. No. But- <laughs> so strange. Oh, well. Um, but yeah, so when blood hits the surface at an angle that's not 90 degrees, the drop then becomes elongated and it looks as though it's kind of just being stretched. So it's no longer that circle and it's more oval-like. Right. And so the tail of these stains, in addition to like the satellites and um, spines that I had previously mentioned, these can also help indicate the direction in which the blood was moving upon impact. Um, so with the tail... Is the way the tail's pointing towards where the blood came from or away from where the blood came from? So, the best that I can kind of describe it without showing you is, like, think of an exclamation point. You know how it's just the line and then the dot? Yeah. So, that dot would be the initial impact and then it extends out towards the stem of that exclamation point. And that's the tail. So whatever way the tail's pointing, where the thinner part is, that's the direction it's going. Okay, yep. If that makes sense. That makes sense to me. Yeah, and so the steeper the angle, the longer the tail that you're going to have with that um, impact spot. Right. And in addition to the angle of impact, the greater the height that blood falls from, the diameter of stains will also be larger with increased amounts of satellites. The greater the velocity is during an impact, the stains have a higher probability of being very small. And I get that that was probably very confusing to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, but to try and reiterate it, um, blood stains will be bigger with more satellites when it's dropped from higher. And blood stains will be smaller most often the when there's greater velocity so at a higher speed that it hits they'll often be smaller does that kind of make sense oh i was with you until you said that (laughs) okay so because i'm kind of thinking of like if you're dropping water even though they're not the same viscosity when it drops down it's going to like hit with more of an impact and splash more if it's dropped from farther than yeah. if it's dropped from lower. Correct. So okay. I think um, I kind of confused everyone with this one. So when it comes to the velocity part, think of it as like a, a bullet wound compared to a blunt force wound. So that speed of the bullet going through and that blood um, being projected from your wound, those little dots are going to be a lot smaller than, say, being punched or being hit with something. So that's what I right. that's okay. what I kind of mean uh, yeah. by the higher the velocity, the smaller the dot, the blood stain. Oh, because I was thinking the higher the velocity of the blood rather than of the, like, impact. Which, like, yeah, the blood so would I- still have the velocity from the impact, but if it's hit with a higher velocity impact, then they'll be smaller. Yeah. So I guess, yeah, the impact speed plus the speed of travel 
through the air. This is where physics comes in and it's really confusing and math it's is hard. Way above um, our pay grade. <laughs> it's way it's way above our pay grade. The only math course I took in university is computer science. So Fair <laughs> that enough. says a little bit. Okay, I think um, I think I got it. Yeah. So like you said, there was a perfect description like when you used water. So if you're dropping um say like a drop of water from like 30 centimeters above a surface, there's less time for that to fall and less force of it falling. Um, so it's not going to be as big. Right. But if you're dropping it from higher, there's more time and more force for it to hit that final surface, make that impact. And that's going to cause it to spread out more once it hits. Right. That makes sense. Okay. People okay, who know good. physics are going to listen to us try and understand that and be like, <laughs> wow, you guys are the biggest idiots. <laughs> it's like trying to explain, like, having second graders try and explain first graders physics. Like, it just, it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, and that being said, those of you who know physics and understand that better than we do, please reach out to us and let us know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, I'm sure there's a much easier way and much better examples to demonstrate this. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well. Um, but with all of this kind of information gained, you can then use some trigonometry, <laughs> more math being thrown in, um, to determine the angle of impact. And then, again, more math to determine kind of a rough idea where the impact came from. So to find the angle of the impact, though, this may go right over your head for the first time, but I'm going to try and explain it after. But you're going to measure the length and width of the individual stain. So you find like one single blood drop, you measure length and width, and it's going to be in millimeters. I heard, I read that you don't do centimeters. It's always in millimeters. Because they're small. Um, Yeah. And then you're going to divide the width of the stain from the length of the stain. Right. Mm, let me double check that because I don't know why I wrote from. I usually wrote right by. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm confusing myself. Um, no, it's width over length. Yeah, it's width yeah. over length. Yeah. Sure. From, by, who, I don't know. It's width over length. I will say that. <laughs> okay. Um, so then with this number you get from this division, if you're going to take the arc sign or the inverse of sign, um, which is just a fancy button on your calculator, and that number will give you the angle of impact. So in an attempt to illustrate math over a podcast. Um, (laughs) If you had a stain the width of 50 millimeters and a length of 100 millimeters, you're going to divide 50 by 100, which gives you 0.5. Then you do that fancy calculator button of 0.5, and that's going to give you an angle of 30 degrees. So that's going to tell you that the Blood hit that surface at 30 degrees. Interesting. Yeah. And so that was the only little bit of math that I was able to do when we did our blood um, pattern analysis unit. 
everything else was <laughs> a bit too much for me. I'm just having flashbacks to that day in the lab trying to like figure out the angle that we had to hold the string at. Yeah. And, like, having needing way more arms than we had. And yeah, yeah. just being a bit of a disaster. I remember so when kind of going, sorry. Sorry, I was just saying, I remember when I first started watching Dexter, like, that's the reason I wanted to get into forensics, and you saw him using all, like, those strings on the angles, and then, like, you were saying, Journey, we got into the lab and tried to do it, and it is yeah. so much harder than it looks, and there is so much more math than you'd expect. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And so, like, that's obviously not the most realistic way to do it. It's a great visualization, but there's more... um complex math that you could do to figure out like where the impact may have happened um but like you guys just said like perfectly what we did in lab and what dexter does on tv so you find the different angles of several different blood drops and then basically you tape well what we did and kind of what dexter does we just had a bit more of a ghetto way of doing it um you tape a piece of string to that blood stain, and then you're going to take a protractor, calculate the angle, and then find the angle of impact, and then extend that string out and somehow attach it to a back piece where they all can attach to. Um, we had three of us doing this, and it was still a bit of a challenge. I'll see if I can find a video of us trying to do that, and then we can put it on our website or on Instagram yeah, or well, something. We, our um, we've got a picture already on of that day, but if we, like, yeah, we'll search for some videos to see if um, it'll just illustrate it a bit better for everyone. Um, but basically, as you keep doing this with multiple different strings, you're going to find that these strings kind of converge and meet together um, in one kind of area. And that's going to be a rough estimate to where that impact occurred. Um, so it was a lot of fun to do this lab and it was so easy to visualize um, compared to us just kind of sitting and calculating and doing a whole bunch of math on paper um, but having tangible string made it a lot easier in life for us. But like I said, it's not really applicable and it's not like a great, it wouldn't be great in the field to do it that way. Like Dexter does, like you, you don't have the time to do what Dexter does every crime scene to figure out the blood pattern. Um, with that kind of being said, though, along the lines of the applicability, um, this type of evidence and science isn't really considered a great science. I mean, like, aside from DNA, basically every other forensic science that exists has been frowned upon or questioned, at least. Um, but it is improving. And there are various other factors are being considered when investigating and exploring blood pattern analysis. So, for example, um, the way we would have found the impact point um, using that string method, that wouldn't entirely be accurate or stand up in a court of law probably at all anymore. Um, and this is because fluid moves on a parabolic arch or a parabolic path. 
So by using the strings, it assumes that blood would have traveled on an exactly straight path. And this would produce like a higher height than what the actual impact height would have been. Because you're not accounting for the down to up to down, if that makes sense. I don't know, like, if everyone knows what a parabola is. (laughs) It's just kind of like a like an arc. Yeah, like a little rainbow. Blood doesn't travel in a straight line. It's gonna arc a little bit and then kind of curve. Yeah, exactly. Um, So there's actually been a a couple researchers and scientists that have created um, more math and more calculations and more stuff that my brain can't understand um, to take into account that parabolic arch, um, which gives you like, it's a difference of say 8% from the actual point. Whereas that straight linear path method is like a 50 plus percent difference from the actual height. So it's a lot smaller of a window using their fancy math method. Um, but to continue off of that, the U.S. National Academy of Science has said that blood, blood pattern analysis lacks scientific rigor and that the accreditation of analysis lacks validity since they go through a specified course for BPA, so like blood pattern analysis, And they don't have to have a background in physics to have this job. So that was kind of like their main point is, well, they don't fully understand fluid dynamics and how physics work. They're just going through the motions to do this analysis. So wait, it said that you you don't need a background in physics to do blood pattern analysis? Correct. So to be like to work as a blood pattern analyst, mm-hmm. there's like a specified blood pattern analyst course and like right. program that you take. Right. So it's not like you have to be a physicist to be able to be accepted into that program. That seems so silly because it feels like you need to know a lot about physics in order to accurately understand blood pattern analysis i would have to agree with you there okay i would really (laughs) have to agree with you okay good good um so like we just kind of said it is a specialty job um so even though you don't have to be a physicist to be an analyst your average joe like street cop still isn't going to be able to do this analysis, this blood pattern analysis, because of its specified um, career path, if that makes sense. So it's kind of like that in-between where it's not where anyone can do it. There is some specifications, but a prerequisite to that does not have to be physics. So kind of like with fingerprints, like an average yeah. street cop can't understand fingerprints. They have to take the fingerprint course. Yeah, exactly. So okay. I guess it's like any kind of forensic science. Like it is more specified um, and tailored to that specific analysis. Right. So in Canada, this job falls under the Forensic Identification Service section of law enforcement. 
And in the States, they have the Scientific Working Group on Blood Stain Pattern Analysis, which I kind of laugh at because it's condensed to swag stain. I mean, like, it's without the A, but I pronounce it as swag stain. I love it. <laughs> um, or at least I was muted, it. but that actually made me laugh out loud. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's just so great. Like, I, I don't know. I, I giggled the first time I read it, and I was like, there's no way it can be swag stain. But it is, and it was created in 2002. Um, but yeah, so I find the science super fascinating. Also something that's incredibly difficult to do as a profession. Like, like I said, your average Joe person can't really just do it. Um, especially at some gruesome bloody scenes that you may see in Dexter. Like it's going to be very difficult to get great patterns from those. Um, so hats off to those people who do that as their career. Um, but yeah, it's definitely a task. I don't know. My, my brain just stopped working. It's definitely a difficult job. Um, but it's so fascinating, in my opinion. I agree. I forgot how interesting I found blood pattern analysis. Yeah, And same. I'm just, like, excited to hear everything you had to say. <laughs> yeah. Because, like, when we talked about doing blood pattern analysis, my brain just went to Dexter as well and just, like, oh, there's blood and it can figure out, like, where the impact was. But there's so many different types of pattern and so many external variables that can affect the way a blood drop hits a surface. That's just yeah. so neat, in my opinion. Yeah, it's just, like, incredibly detailed. Yeah. It's just so cool that this... I don't know. There's so much we can learn about a crime scene just because of the way the liquid in our body splatters. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To right. put it exactly. in a bit of a gross way. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's all I've got on blood pattern analysis today. Well, thank you, Nicole. It was so interesting. And I was just absorbing it all. I was so excited. Hopefully it was kind of digestible to... The average listener. I mean, I we mean, have some history, sorry, history and knowledge in this, but yeah. I hope I was able to articulate it well enough to understand. So if not, message us, email us, ask questions. We yeah. will answer. Exactly. I think you did a good job, but I also learned this with you. So I don't know if I'm like filling in the gaps with the class knowledge or what, but yeah. I think you did a good job. Thanks. You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you so much for telling us all about that and like trying or finding ways to give us mental images while it being almost impossible. You are welcome. And check the <laughs> site for images because yes. I will post some. And I found some excellent videos that kind of explain exactly the string theory that we were Ooh. talking about with examples like that we did it. Like we took some really good videos when we did that. Yeah. Okay. Um, perfect. So maybe we'll post those on Instagram and stuff so you guys can one have of a the, look. Um one of the videos too I watched during my little research for all of this um was a quick like 15 minute uh YouTube video where a professional like walks you through what he does kind of at a scene. Um and he shows you like you got a pool of blood on a wooden table and he like takes a hammer to it and you see like 
the stains that way. So it's in our source list. So I really recommend that one as well. That is really cool. Yeah. All right. Well, that was blood pattern analysis and Mark Twitchell. Um, it very interesting. I'm very excited um, <laughs> that we got to talk about that. But anyway, our next topic is going to be the famous Lindbergh kidnapping um, that happened in 1932. I don't know much about it. One of the kids in our um, forensics class gave us like a brief little synopsis of it. So I'm kind of excited to go more in depth with that. And then with that case, we're going to be talking about forensic document examination. And so that'll be very interesting as well. It's such a like broad forensic specialty again. Um, so it'll be really neat to kind of talk about that. I did not find a joke for you guys. <laughs> Boo! I told myself I was going to do that while I was listening to what you were talking about, and then I got too excited and enthralled um, that I... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if this will be funny to other people. It's not really a joke, it's just like a sentence, but it's... Two blood cells met and fell in love, but alas, it was all in vain. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I love it. It's great. <laughs> I found a similar one that was like, two red blood cells decided to get married together. So the platelets and the white blood cells wished them coagulations. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one, too. Look at that. Two jokes for one on a no Perfect. joke bag. Excellent. You guys are welcome. <laughs> All right. So, Rebecca, did you want to tell our listeners where they can get in contact with us? Absolutely. Um, so, if you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at What the Forensics. On Twitter, we are WT Forensics PC. Um, you can also find us on our website where we post all of our sources and we post the images that we've been talking about. And there's just also some info about us. Um, that's whatthefrensics.ca. And finally, if you want to reach out to us directly, whether you have questions about the topics or you want to uh, suggest a topic, you can send us an email at whattheforensics at gmail.com. Awesome. So this has been another episode of What the Forensics. We hope you enjoyed it and we will see you next time. Just a reminder to everyone that we are not professionals in the forensic science field. We are just students who are learning and want to share what we are learning with our listeners. We're trying to give you the most accurate information, but we are human and we can make mistakes. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you next week.